time. I've studied it years ago, but hadn't done an in-depth teaching of it to teach Second Peter. And um, in the study of this one, it has really truly been a blessing, uh, a blessing to me. Let's recap, shall we, a little bit of all of Second Peter to catch the flow of this. We've done a study of Second Peter over many weeks, but it must be remembered that these were letters that were written and to be read in churches and to kind of understand the whole flow of everything, of the whole letter. Uh, I'm not going to go back through and read the whole thing, uh, but it might be helpful for us to remember a little bit where we've gone so far in this series. And it's three chapters long. It breaks up into three fairly evenly um, even, uh, three pretty easily identifiable divisions. The first one is dealing with the great salvation that is offered to us in Christ. We saw the great gifts of Christ, the salvation, the goal of the Christian life, the sanctification, and then the, the revelation of Christ, both in Scripture and in what, the, uh, what Peter experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in chapter 2, we saw Peter's strong warning against the false teachers that were infiltrating in the church. Gave a kind of a description of them, the judgment that they were going to face, the character and the conduct. And then lastly, in chapter 3, he's dealing with what I think is the, the pressing issue that the false teachers were, were questioning. And that was the second coming of Christ, which we saw last week. So today we end the letter, Peter ends his letter with, now in light of all of that, how to live in light of his coming. How do we live until he comes again? And unfortunately, I left the handouts on the printer at home. And so if you have a piece of paper or some sort of notebook uh, to write and to follow along, uh, we still will have the slides on the screen. Uh, but I don't have something uh, for you to fill out in the handout. But the very end of this letter is about now in light of the false teachers and what they were teaching and the fact that Christ is coming again. How ought we to live in light of that? How ought we to live in the last days? And I think that there's two ways that this last section of Second Peter can be broken up. And it's in uh, two E-words. I'll give you both of the E-words now. Eschatology, big fancy words here. Eschatology and ethics. Eschatology and ethics. Eschatology. Now, what do I mean by eschatology? First of all, who's heard that word before, right? Okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that word is, it's, it's derived from the Greek word for last. It's the study of the last things. The Bible presents for us a depiction of what the end of time will be like. And so the study of all of those things about the afterlife, about when Christ comes back, what happens when he comes back, um, what happens to the righteous, what happens to the unrighteous, what happens to those who trust in Christ, what happens to those who don't, um, and what eternity with Christ will be like. All, that whole study is the study of eschatology. And that is basically what Peter is, spends the most amount of time in here. So there's two parts to this eschatology in this chapter. One is this world. We saw a little bit of this in last week's passage. 
But he returns to it again in verses 10 and 11 and 12. So at the beginning of this week, you kind of where, where it ends last week, it begins this week. So let me remind ourselves a little bit of where, um, of, about what the fate of this present world will be. Notice verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the present universe, the present system, the heavens and the earth are going to be stored up for a, a day of judgment. There's going to be fire involved. Notice verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. He continues into verse 11, which is the start of this morning's passage. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We're going to get to the holiness and godliness part here in a moment. But it's, again, returning to this idea of what he just talked about in 7 and what he just talked about in 10. And now this is what this means for us. And then notice the, the latter half of verse 12, the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He's talking about our present world. And notice heavens and earth, verse 7. Notice the heavens and the heavenly bodies and the earth in verse 10. And then notice verse 12, the heavens and the heavenly bodies in verse 12, he's talking about what will happen when Christ comes back in his return to this present world, this world. But also to keep in mind the next world in verse 13. Notice verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new heavens and a new earth. This is the promise that we're given that there is going to be a new creation or a new heavens and a new earth. A new perfect and restored creation. And that future restored creation affects how we live here and now as we're going to see in here in a moment but notice this phrase the new heavens and a new earth notice at the beginning where it says according to his promise okay so what does this mean his promise for a new heavens and a new earth where is that he's actually referencing uh, isaiah the very last chapters of isaiah and here are a couple of the references of that in Isaiah chapter 65 and Isaiah chapter 66. For the Lord says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So this all harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, correct? With the heavens and the earth. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. That's all the present system that we see today. 
But then in Genesis chapter 3, we see the, the curse that comes upon the earth because of the fall. Adam and Eve in their sin have brought sin into the world. And as Romans says, all of creation kind of groans under that until the full redemption that comes when Christ comes back. But in Isaiah, there is a, a, a picture here, a promise that the present heavens and the earth will not be remembered. It will not be called to mind anymore because of the fallenness and the brokenness in the sin. When God comes to judge all of those things, the present sinful, the world that's presently held in bondage because of sin will all be forgotten. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth promised in the Old Testament. Also, chapter 66, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. This is what Peter is referencing, that promise. Isaiah, the Lord had promised this through Isaiah, that there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what we are waiting for and we're longing for. And if I could have you turn to... Uh, Turn to the right in your Bibles to Revelation, the last two or three pages of your Bible. We have John's vision. He gets a picture of what Isaiah was talking about and what Peter is saying Isaiah was talking about. John actually sees. He actually gets a picture of this. And so... Bear with me, just follow along as, as I read Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And I'm going to read the whole thing because I really want us to get a picture. Just kind of picture the imagery and the, uh, the symbolism that is here. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Ah, right there. When you see new heaven and new earth, you know that this is what Isaiah is talking about. This is what Peter is talking about. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, notice that, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's almost a direct quote from Isaiah 65. And he, so this is what John gets to see. What, what the Lord said to Isaiah with not much other description, what Peter was referencing in way of promise, John gets a sneak peek. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That would be like saying A to Z, the 
Alpha being the first word or first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega being the last. I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 uh, at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Notice, notice the 12 here, 12 being kind of this symbolic number that's repeated over and over again. Now, Verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, I want you to notice the footnotes there because it's leaving in the Greek words there. 12,000 stadia. Well, what's a stadia? The footnote there tells you that this is the equivalent of 1,380 miles. I don't, I don't know if that's like kind of, if you were to draw a line from Seattle almost all the way to Chicago or somewhere in there, maybe Minneapolis or something. 1,300 miles. And so it's 1,300 miles. Why 1,300 miles uh, deep? So maybe go from Seattle to, like down to, I don't know, my hometown or something like that. Just picture it encompassing all of the western United States. We'll put it that way. But then notice this. It's the length of the city and the width of the city and the height are equal at this 12,000 stadia. So basically it's a cube. And it's really interesting. We were talking about this not too long ago. I, I don't remember where we were. We were talking about um, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and that it's basically a cube. Um, and so we're picturing, wow, this is kind of a big city, you know, 1,380 miles high and wide and, and deep. Um, but it's important to notice here, where, where else is there a cube in the Bible? The only other cube dimensionally in the Bible is the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, in the temple. He's, he's basically saying with figurative, symbolic nature, he's saying basically the holy place that only the high priest could go into is now the entire city and everybody gets to go into. Verse 18. 
The wall was built of jasper and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What an amazing picture. This is, this is the new heavens and the new earth. And with all of this beautiful imagery and symbolism. Now when we get there, it's, will it literally be like this? I think we, we kind of generally have the idea. It's going to be glorious. Peter is saying, this is what we're waiting for. This is what we're waiting for. The present earth that's grieved and burdened by the fall of mankind and its sin and is groaning and waiting for the redemption that the sons of God, those who have faith in Christ, already get to experience because he told us that everybody is in, 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 in Christ. He is a new creation. You are a new creation. But we're awaiting for all of the creation to be restored and renewed. And that's what Peter is saying. This is what we're waiting for. This is what we're longing for. So how do we live then in light of that? I thought it was important that we kind of dwell on that a little bit here because Peter just mentions it in passing, but this is what he's referring to. How do we live in light of that? Well, this is what we get to the ethics now. This is what we do. How do we behave? How are we to be in light of that place that we are looking for? And now Peter does this in, uh, in a set of pairs. He does three sets of pairs, and then he has kind of a seventh one here. So let's look at each of the pairs. Verse 11. Here's the pairs. Holiness and godliness. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What people ought you to be in light of this, uh, that all of these things are going to be dissolved, and that we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, what ought you to be? This is, it sounds kind of like a question, but it's more like a declaration. Oh, this, you know, this is, this is what you ought to be. Lives of holiness and godliness. Holiness, of course, is the set-apartness. Set apart from sin. Set apart for specific use by God. Peter's already addressed this a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 1. When he wrote, and you can turn there if you want, but verses 14 and 17. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So no longer do you follow your sinful desires uh, from which you turned and repented of to turn to Christ. You actually now say no way to those things. I'm devoting myself to God to be like God. And he is the model for he is holy. Therefore, uh, that's what I am to be. And notice in verse 17, he continues to say this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself then with fear throughout the time of your exile. So holiness, holiness. And here's the other half of the pair. Godliness. A favorite word of, of Peter's in this letter in particular. Notice in chapter one of second Peter, we, we already saw this word briefly. In verse 3, where he says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Godliness is, is the term for basically how, like how, your, it's basically this, de, uh, describing your overall devotion to God. And you're like, well, how is that different than holiness? They're, they're very, very synonymous. That's why Peter is kind of using these very, very similar terms. And godliness is what we are to pursue. Notice that verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. You know, that we're to add, we're to supplement our faith with virtue and virtue and knowledge and knowledge of self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brother, brotherly affection. The world is going to end, and when Christ returns to reign and bring the new heavens and the new earth, uh, with that in mind, how much more important it is to be holy and godly. That's the first pair. Look at the second pair. Verse 12, waiting and hastening, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, a little side note here. Um, this is a kind of an unusual expression. The coming, which is the, the word parousia, it's usually used to describe the coming of day of the Lord or the coming day of Christ. But here it says God, and um, it's basically just another way of saying what he said in verse 10, the, the day of the Lord coming like a thief. Okay. Now there's some who see this uh, as evidence of two different days, like there's a day of the Lord and that there's a day of God. Uh, but all throughout the New Testament, this Coming of the Lord, coming, it all refers to Christ. So instead of two comings, one of a coming of Christ and one a coming of God, it's better to just see these as synonymous. Okay, it's just a little aside there. Um, and by the way, which is here is another example. If that's the case, this is another example where Peter just kind of casually references Jesus as God, like he does at the very beginning of this letter. So uh, this is the coming of the day of God. But notice the two things that we're supposed to do in light of the coming of that day. Waiting and hastening, which sounds kind of uh, uh, it's an interesting irony, right? Waiting seems like I'm going to be patient and I'm going to wait. But hastening, it sounds like a little bit like um, like speeding it up. Hurrying it up. So it's this weird kind of thing. It's kind of like they're simultaneously waiting and hurrying. At the same time, what is this hastening? We talked about this at, at midweek at home group. 
<clears throat> what does this mean by hastening? There's actually two senses to this word. Okay, let me give you both of them. One of them uh, is, um, and, and the question was, as we talked about, does this mean we could speed up Jesus's return? Can we actually, can, is there a timetable in that we're actually speeding it up? Um, there's, there's some ways of interpreting that because that's what one of the meanings of the word can be. It means to hasten or to hurry along or to hurry up or cause to happen sooner. Or one translation puts it this way, to do one's best to make something come soon or to speed. Actually, the Greek word is spudo, which I don't know if that is related to like the word speed. I'm not sure if that it's etymologically connected or not. I don't know. So there's one way of understanding it. Yes, it's hurrying this along. There's another way of uh, it's used is more like striving for or to be eager for or to be diligent about knowing that something is coming. So number one is possible. It Perhaps it could be the case that what Peter is saying here is that uh, God uh, delays the Lord's return, maybe giving an opportunity for people to repent. And that from a, a human point of view, when we when people come to repent, come to trust in Christ, come to live uh, holy and godly lives, then he's then we're bringing the return of Christ a little bit um, sooner. So we commit to evangelism and prayer and Christian behavior. We're motivated to make those things happen because then we're speeding Christ's return. It's possible. It's possible. I don't rule that out. Um, but I tend to think that it's the second one. I, I think that there is a day that the Lord has fixed. And I think that the idea here is more like we're striving for, we're eager for, we're working toward, we're diligent about. And I was talking about this with Janet. She helped me give a great, uh, a great analogy. And the analogy is like a wedding. How many have been to a wedding this summer? I've been to, uh, to a couple of weddings this summer, a um, couple of Janet's friends, kids. And it's just an interesting time where now like, you know, like our friends' kids are getting married. Um, but I was thinking about the, the example of a wedding. It, a date is set in the distance, this big event. Okay. But there are things that need to be done in preparation for this uh, uh, event, uh, like venue, uh, wedding party, uh, pastor, invitations are chosen and sent out, dresses for bridesmaid are picked out, suits for the guys are picked out. Reception, food, refreshments, dancing, DJ, band, flowers, photographer. Uh, these, how many of you have ever been on the planning end of a wedding like this? How many of you is that's very stressful and there's a lot of things involved in that? Um, so we were thinking about this. You're excited for it, but then you all of a sudden now we're working toward it. We're, we're bringing this to, to completion. And so there's a sense in which you're working at getting these things done. You're hastening that day. Because of all the things that are involved with that day, you're hastening those. And if you get those things done early, you're prepared. Now you're, you're waiting. You're hastening and you're waiting. But I've never heard this before. I've never heard anybody who picked a date, got everything ready, everything was planned, and everything was early. And we go, this is awesome. Let's move the wedding up from Saturday to Monday. Right? So it... 
you are done. You are still hastening the day, but the day still is fixed. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's a a, a, a way of understanding it. Either way, I think is is an appropriate um, understanding of this word. But imagine imagine a wedding that you didn't hasten for. You go. Oh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it eventually. And then the day shows up and then things are unprepared or things are undone. Um, the, the, the invitation said dinner at the reception and you don't have any food ready, right? You weren't hastening the day. Even Jesus used an example of the wedding as the image of his coming. Matter of fact, we read that here in, in Revelation. When the Lord comes in, in, in the new heavens and the new earth, it's the references to, to the bride, his people. Jesus uh, did a similar, um, used a similar uh, metaphor and a picture for, uh, for his coming in Matthew 25. Ancient weddings, there was kind of a general time frame. How, how it worked was there was a general time frame the the bride would kind of get ready she would have all of her bridesmaids to kind of be with her and, and get ready and then the groom would just show up unannounced and there would be kind of like a whole party and then he would take the bride and then they would go to where the wedding was held and then they would have the wedding that's how ancient weddings were were done and jesus is describing this and he's describing this in terms of um uh, of 10 virgins think of think bridesmaids and there were five foolish ones and five wise ones the five wise ones were the five who were ready they had the oil lamps and everything ready the wicks were trimmed um, so think think of this they had their dress they had it sized they had the flowers they had everything all ready to go but then you had five uh, virgins or, or bridesmaids five who were not ready uh, they had run out of oil so that their lamps wouldn't light. And then they realized they were running out. So they went to the other five and said, hey, could you give us some oil? And they were like, if we give you oil, then none of us have any oil. Because then we'd all run out. And so those five left to try and go buy some more. But in the meantime, as they were gone buying for oil, the groom shows up. And the party gets started. And the doors are shut. And then the five are not there. And then Jesus uses this. As an example, he says, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, truly, I say to you, I do not know you watch. Therefore, for you neither, uh, you know, neither the day nor the hour. So waiting and hastening. Patience. But are there things that we need to do in the meantime? To hasten the coming, whether that moves the timetable or not, there's whether that date is fixed or not. There's still things that you need that we need to do to hasten and be ready for that day. So a couple of questions then. Are you prepared? How is your personal holiness? If Christ's return was timed. On your personal holiness, then what's the time frame? Or, if the time frame is fixed, when Christ shows up, what will your holiness look like? 
Will it look like a wedding feast that said it was going to have dinner and didn't have any food? What about your personal godliness? Would your personal godliness look like, boy, this is hastening, this is speeding up the timetable? Or if the timetable is fixed, if Jesus shows up, what would the state of your godliness be? So we're waiting and hastening for the day. Peter says, and then notice in verse 14, here's the, here's the third pairing. Uh, and I'll put spotless and blameless here in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Okay, without spot or blemish. Now, this is a direct contrast to the false teachers. Notice in chapter two, verse 13. In this long uh, kind of categorization about their their character, what these these false teachers were like, uh, he says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes. It's the exact same two Greek words that Peter is using here to describe the opposite they were they were blots and blemishes we are to be blotless and blemishless so once again we're being told to contrast ourselves as one way put it we're contrast ourselves with those who face god's judgment to distance ourselves from them and to be unlike them as possible is what one commentator put it so not only and I think there's something interesting here, too, about this spotless or without spot or without blemish, that it's not only are we to distance them ourselves from the false teachers who are the opposite of those two things. I think we are also here to align ourselves with the one who issues the judgment. We're not only to distance ourselves from the one who are going to be receiving the judgment of Christ. We are to be imitating and aligning ourselves with the one who issues the judgment of Christ. And that's Christ himself. Why do I say that? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter three times used these terms. We've looked at two of them already. Here's the other place that he uses these exact two terms together. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 when he says knowing that you writing to this church knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things like silver or gold because that would be typically how you would be ransomed or bought from slavery or whatever uh, you not with perishable things like silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb with what without blemish or spot peter uses this three times here's the other time the opposite of it is he's describing false teachers he says while you're waiting and hastening the day this is how you ought to be diligent for and the other time he uses it is for jesus himself and his blood this calls right back to the most dramatic moment in Israel's history, and that's the Passover. When the Lord God heard the crying of his people in bondage of slavery in Egypt, he heard and he answered and he sent Moses. And then we went through all of the plagues and the 10th plague was going to be the death of the firstborn. And that God pro- graciously provides a means by which they will escape that judgment. And that is 
get a lamb and you're going to take the lamb and you're going to apply its blood to the doorposts. Let me read to it. This month, the Lord says, shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house, a lamb for a household. Verse 5 of Exodus chapter 12, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. Then you should keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. The blood, he goes on to say, will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. A, a lamb without blemish whose blood was applied and then causes the Lord's judgment to pass over. Jesus is that lamb. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. Behold the Lamb of God. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says, And how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. So here's this last pair. How are we to live until he comes again? Well, with holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening and spotless and blameless, not like the false teachers who will be experiencing judgment, but like Jesus himself. That's our goal. And then lastly, he says, and be diligent to be found by him at peace. What an assuring word when you think about the trials and tribulations that come in this world. And the fact that the world's going to be burned up and set on fire and melted. And Peter says, hey, and as that day is nearing, be at peace. Be at peace. Because there's a new heavens and a new earth coming. Now, let's finish uh, a little bit here. I want to give a little excursus. Uh, he, Peter kind of takes a little excursus here, but I think we should look at this passage. It's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but then we'll come back to the ending. Notice verses 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. We kind of dealt with that last week, that the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish. The day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And then he says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. So notice this. I, I think this was just really cool when I thought about it. it, it I, I've known this passage, but I hadn't really just, you know, have those aha moments when things kind of dawn on you. That this church or churches to whom Peter is writing and has been writing, um, received a handwritten letters, which is kind of mind-boggling, right? Like, just put yourself in this, in, you know, central Turkey, 
uh, modern day Turkey, and you, your church gets this handwritten scroll, and oh man, this comes from the Apostle Peter. He actually walked with Jesus. And you're reading his, his words to you. And he's written, as we saw, uh, he said earlier, he goes, this is my second letter I've written to you. They've gotten multiple letters from Peter. And then it just dawned on me, like, this church not only got letters handwritten from Peter, they got them from Paul too. That just kind of blew me away. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. Wow, that's really cool. You know, in the ancient world, letters would circulate from church to church, and sometimes it would take a lot, a long time to get there. Um, there, in but it would be very rare that that both Peter and Paul would be alive and writing letters, and the same church would get would get both. I think that's pretty, but pretty cool. But here's the thing: um, we're just as blessed as they are because we actually have all of their letters too. So, um, but notice this. Peter, Peter wrote and Paul wrote. They shared the same doctrine. They shared the same opinion. These two key leaders of the church, one the apostle to the Jews, one the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter actually, in about 20 years earlier, Peter gets confronted to his face by the apostle Paul for being a hypocrite in the way he lives. Galatians chapter 1 tells us about that. But then Peter loves him and appreciates for what he's done. Look at the, the dear, he goes, our beloved brother, Paul. He calls Paul a beloved brother. And then Peter recognizes the special gifts that Paul has given him. Look at the, according to the wisdom given him. Peter acknowledges that what Paul writes isn't easy to understand. So if you're, every, you're reading the New Testament and go, what is Paul talking about here? Peter's like, with you, been there. And Peter turns back to the false teachers a little bit. He talks about the ignorant and unstable um, and that the false teachers twist the scriptures. But notice this little thing he says here. It's, it, it, you don't want to miss this. As they do the other scriptures. Notice he's not saying as they do the scriptures. Like they twist the scriptures and they're twisting Paul, uh, Paul's letters too. He's basically admitting Paul's letters are scripture here. Considered are on par with the Old Testament. So uh, that's just a, a little excursus Peter takes regarding Paul's letters there. But here's the final exhortation. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care. Remember, Peter is knowing that his days are numbered. He knows he's... The Lord Jesus had made it clear to him that he's going to depart this world. He's very eager and concerned to write to them. And here's his last words, as far as we know. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. But on the contrast, grow Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's dreaded the idea, the thought that false teachers twisting the scriptures a little bit, just just deviating from the real Jesus, even at the slightest degree. Would cause them to be carried away. 
and to lose their stability. And he says, on the other hand, just grow. Just grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, our Savior. And his closing doxology. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Friends, that day is coming, and it's sooner than it was yesterday. Amen? Amen? And it's sooner than, and tomorrow will be sooner than today. Be ready. How much more should our lives be in holiness and godliness? Would you, would you consider that this week? Consider your speech. Consider your viewing habits. Consider your heart. Consider your interactions with people. How much more should we be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting and hastening that day. And may we be spotless and blameless like Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we have heard your word and we accept the challenge that you've laid before us. We thank you for the picture that you gave us of where we get to spend eternity and what it will be like. The absence of pain, the absence of sin, the absence of, of heartache and tears and sadness, the absence of frustration and difficulty, the absence of uh, the sinfulness of our own, own hearts and the absence of the wicked and evil that's perpetrated against people in this world. We thank you that there will be a day when none of that will be here any longer. And so God, help us to diligently Hasten that day. Bring conviction to us in the ways in which we need to align ourselves uh, not with the spotted and the blame, uh, blameful, but with the unspotted and the blameless. Align us to your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that, that we ask you to do that. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand for our closing benediction. And let me just read the last verse of this, this letter as our closing benediction. Um, Brothers and sisters, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and now. And to the day of eternity, and let's all say, Amen. Amen. Peace be with you. Thank you.